Well, good evening, everyone. Um, this is tonight is was supposed to be the third of a four-part series. Uh, I think the series has been compressed into three parts. So um, the series is about the foundations of mindfulness. And so last week the speaker spoke about the first two foundations. And I'll be speaking about the third tonight, and um, uh, Inez will be speaking about the, the fourth uh, next week. So I wanted to start by asking, how many of you have heard about the four foundations of mindfulness? Okay, some of you have. And um, how many of you were here last week to hear the first two parts? <laughs> okay. Well, I think I'll then I'll review... Uh, what these are, uh, just briefly before I go into the third one in particular. Um, And also to kind of set your minds at ease if you're worried about trying to remember this list of four and, and things like that. There are other talks about this on our website, the Insight Meditation Center website. Um, in the audio dharma section. One of them is um, in a section called Deepening Practice uh, on the Four Foundations. And there's another one in the um, in the section of audio, audio dharma talks called uh, Satipatthana Sutta. There's one from October 13th of 2003 on mind states. So... You can just relax and absorb whatever you can absorb tonight. And um, you can go to the website to hear other talks about this. There's also uh, several books that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, One of them is the um, Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha. This is called um, the uh, Majimanakaya. And I'll be reading a little bit out of that about these four foundations. And some of what's said in here is rather brief. So there's another book called um, The Wings of Awakening that was written by um, Tinisru Bhikkhu. He's the um, abbot at the monastery down near San Diego called Wat Metta, where he goes into much greater depth about his interpretation of what the Buddha was talking about. And this is available both, it's, it's on the web uh, electronically, and then there probably are also copies of this uh, out near the Donna boxes. Um, if they're not there now, they'll probably be there sometime in the next year. He, he provides these uh, free to whoever is interested in getting them. And this book's also available in the library. So I wanted to start just by um, missed it. By reading the first uh, three paragraphs of the Satipatthana Sutta, you'll, you'll as as you hang out in this tradition for a while, you'll probably hear this discussed quite often. 
Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country at a town of the Kurus named Kamasadama. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus are monks. Bhikkhus. Venerable sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this. Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrows and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So he's really saying there's there's something important to be gained by um, doing this practice. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So in that short section, he talks about the four things that we can or four frames of reference for um, objects or qualities that we can be mindful of that will lead to liberation. So the first one that he, he mentioned was mindfulness of the body. And I think for those of you who have taken introductory meditation classes, the, the first instructions are usually about paying attention to the breath. So paying attention to that bodily experience of the breath as it moves in and out of the body. Um, There's also mindfulness of um, bodily sensations, you know, physical sensations that you feel as you're sitting there. Um, If you do walking meditation, the, the sensations of the feet, legs and in this the description was mindfulness of the body in and of itself so what that means is that you're using you're paying a direction attention to the body directly not using the world as the frame of reference so not judging the body as you know this is a strong body or this is a weak body. This is a a young body or this is an old body. Um, Not looking at the world as, not looking at the body as the world might see it, but what's your direct experience of it? So I'm, I'm guessing that most of you who have done some meditation then have already have experience with this mindfulness of the body. The next 
one that the Buddha mentioned was mindfulness of feelings. And this really means mindfulness of the feeling tone of your experience. Is the experience that you're having right now, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Or is it neutral? Kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that's perhaps a little bit more subtle or not as well established a a mindfulness for many of us as mindfulness of the body. Then the third foundation of mindfulness, which I'm going to talk about more tonight, is mindfulness of, well, as what he said, mindfulness of mind or mindfulness of mind states, uh, chitta in the, the Pali. And then the fourth, fourth one is mindfulness of um, mind objects or mental qualities, uh, sometimes the, the dhammas. So uh, Inez will be going into all of the, the, there's I think actually a list of lists of mind objects. So that's, uh, takes a little bit of uh, memorization. So mindfulness of mind states, you can, you know, kind of in the simplest way is just thinking about what is the state of your mind in this moment? Um, So you may want to just take a few moments and pay attention to what what is the state of your, your heart and mind at this moment? Is there some simple description that comes to mind? So the, the Buddha laid out some possibilities of, of what states of mind you might experience. And again, it's, it's fairly brief. So I'll, I'll read that. And these teachings were all given orally. So they tend to be repetitive, which makes it easier to remember if you're, if you're just passing them by word of mouth. So I'll, um, I won't read every single thing that he said, but you'll kind of get the, the, um, the rhythm of it under contemplation of mind. And how bhikkhus... Does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He goes on, he understands mind affected by delusion, Mind unaffected by delusion. Uh, Contracted mind. Distracted mind. Exalted mind and unexalted mind. Surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind. Concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind. 
understands liberated mind and unliberated mind. In this way, he abides contemplating mind as mind internally, or he abides contemplating mind as mind externally, or he abides contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally. Or else he abides contemplating in mind its arising factors, or he abides contemplating in mind its vanishing factors, or he abides contemplating in mind both its arising and vanishing factors. Or, or else mindfulness that there is a mind is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind. So in the, in that, the first part that I read in here, he talked about mindfulness of mind with three kind of activities or qualities. He, he talked about doing it, um, being ardent, fully aware, and mindful. So, although this is called mindfulness practice, it's more than just um, it's more than just remembering what we're doing, and it's more than just the. Well, it's, it's a little confusing because there's mindfulness practice which is kind of the term that includes all three of these activities. So um, the mindful part is really being able to remember or recollect. So when we sit down to meditate and we choose a particular um, foundation that we're going to work on, let's say tonight or Let's say in a particular sitting, you decide, okay, I'm going to spend this next half an hour, 45 minutes being mindful of my mind state, of what is the state of mind and heart that I'm experiencing in this moment. So the mindful part would be remembering that that's what you're doing. Now, as your mind may drift off from that, um, then that quality of alertness, which is the, the clear awareness of what's happening, comes into play. So when you're, when you're focused on the mind state, then you're alert to that or you're fully aware that's what's happening right now. And then if you should drift off, you're alert to, um, oh, I'm fantasizing now, or um, I'm remembering, or I'm planning. And then the ardent part is the effort or the exertion that you bring to bringing your focus back to the foundation of mindfulness that you chose. So, um, 
So if you drift off into a very pleasant story, um, the ardent, you know, developing the ardency to say, well, that's a pleasant story, but, you know, I think I'll, I'll think I'll come back to that later after I'm done with my meditation. But for right now, I'll come back to the object that I've chosen. And there's um, uh, two purposes to doing that. One is to help develop the ability to remain focused on the particular frame of reference that you've chosen, whether it's the body, feelings, mind states, or uh, mental qualities. And the other part is, as it said in the sutta, putting aside distractions of greed and distress for the world. And my understanding of that is that you make a conscious choice when you sit down to meditate that you're going to um, set your intention to stay with um, what's happening in your with your mind state at this moment and let go of either um, you know greed for the world that is to say um, thoughts about what it is that you find attractive or you're desirous of in the world or distress for the world, what it is that's um, what it is about the experience or your construction of the world other than what's happening right now that might be perturbing your mind. So kind of letting, you know, for for the time that you're meditating, really letting go of the thoughts and concerns and ideas that you have about um, the wider world and just staying with your, your um, direct momentary experience. And what that will do over time is that it leads to concentration. It leads to a mind that isn't jumping from thought to thought and idea to idea, but a mind that can rest in one place. So so that's kind of the, the first stage that the Buddha pointed to in, in that the second reading that I did. Um, he also talked in that reading about um, noticing the uh, origination and passing away of mind states. So in that second stage then, there can be, instead of just developing awareness of what's going on, you can start to pay attention to what is it that I'm doing moment to moment that might lead 
to certain mind states coming into being or passing away. So you might find that that with a concentrated mind that you can start to pay attention to when I stay with certain thoughts, does my mind become more concentrated or does it become less concentrated? Is it does it become contracted or relaxed? Um, the description is you can pay attention to. Well, when I read that list of, of different mind states that you might notice coming up, you might have noticed that some of them sounded like. They might be ones that you'd want to cultivate and ones that you might not want to cultivate. And the term that's often used is, is it a skillful mind state or is it unskillful? And in talking about skillful versus unskillful, it's not so much that there's some moral judgment about some being better than others. It's more about... um, which mind states are going to lead to your long-term happiness and well-being and which ones tend to lead away from that. So, um, for example, a a mind state uh, of fear, you know, is that, is that where you want to hang out? Is that, um, does that lead to your long-term happiness and well-being? And likewise, a, a, a mind state uh, of compassion. Is that what, what thoughts and words and actions that you take tend to strengthen a mind state of compassion, uh, bring bring it into being and and sustain it, and which tend to lead to its passing away. So, as the practice develops, you can move from just being, simply being aware of what's happening to noticing what inputs in the present moment you can make that affect the experience you're having. And this can lead to a a more refined state of concentration and also to um, kind of an equanimity, which is sort of like emotional balance, an ability to kind of not get pulled to the extremes of the emotional um, spectrum. And then the third stage that the Buddha talked about in that rather short reading was about just being aware of there is a mind. And that's reaching a place of non-clinging where this mind state 
that you've developed an awareness of and, and some ability to um, uh, either bring into being or uh, have pass away. In the non-clinging part, it's not identifying the mind state as yours. It's not identifying with um, you know, either this is my hateful mind state or this is, is my loving mind state. It's just this is, this is a mind state. And that can, and following that path then can lead to the cessation of suffering. So that's kind of, um, I don't know, that might have been kind of abstract or, or academic. Um, so I wanted to give you some examples of uh, experiences I've had in the last couple months um, as I started to think about giving a talk about mindfulness of mind states. It actually motivated me to pay attention, not only in my meditation, but um, just in my day-to-day life of at any given moment in time, could I tell, well, what's the state of my mind right now? You know, a lot of times, I think for a long time, I just thought, well, you know, it's just this new, it's this blank canvas and that the world is drawing upon and that it's kind of... um, It wasn't something that I could really identify. But a couple months ago, I was getting ready for a potluck with a soup group that I'm in where I was supposed to make salad for 14 people. And I had made a whole list of things, stores I was going to go to and things I was going to buy. And this this whole way my day was going to go. And to start it off, I thought, well, I I think I'll start by getting a bar of high-octane chocolate. It's like 70% cocoa chocolate. And uh, it really, you know, perked me up. (laughs) Wow, this is pretty good. And it was pleasant. And I also realized, and what I realized was, well, this is pretty good. But then the rest of the world wasn't moving quite as fast as I needed it to be moving. So I noticed irritation arising. And every store that I went to and every item on my list took about five to ten minutes longer than I had planned for. So the world really wasn't cooperating very well. I mean, I kept those five and ten minute intervals kept adding up. And I'd notice irritation arising. And I'd go, well, that's not what's supposed to be happening. And I'd, and I'd pay attention to it, and it would usually, you know, kind of disappear on its own. And then after a while, I noticed, boy, these seemingly random events of irritation seem to be coming pretty regularly. <laughs> 
And so I finally recognized, oh, this I'm irritable. That's what the mind state is. It's, it's irritable. And so I did this practice for the rest of the day where I'd really see if I could pay attention, if I could notice the first moment that that trigger for irritation arose. You know, whether it was somebody cutting in front of me while I was driving or somebody, you know, searching through their bag for a five cent off coupon in front of me in the store. Whatever it was that, you know, would sort of like, huh, what are they doing? Don't, don't they realize I have an agenda here? Um, and so it wasn't really, I mean, I really didn't have a choice. At, at the time, it didn't seem like I had much of a choice about what my mind state was. But I did have a choice to really be aware of that was my mind state at the time. It was irritable. You know, kind of contracted. And it did lead me to be able to do a few things that made it somewhat less painful. One was by really noticing the triggers, you know, like just waiting, you know, really paying attention to when, when's the next trigger going to come. It wasn't, I didn't react quite as strongly as if I had just let you know, kind of like irritation after irritation build. And also when I got to the dinner uh, 45 minutes later than I thought I was going to and started making the salad after everybody had already arrived, I had enough wisdom to tell a friend of mine, I'm really irritated right now. So would you be willing to just leave me alone while I work in the kitchen? And she did. And she kind of let everyone else know, well, Jim's irritated right now. And so um, it was actually very supportive. You know, I mean, I didn't feel like I had to engage in conversation while I was chopping the tomatoes. And um, so there was some of this uh, wisdom that came out of recognizing that that was the mind state that was going on. Uh, More recently, the mind state that I worked with for quite a while was um, the arising of April uh, April 15th and taxes. And it's just something that I really contract around. And uh, there's a lot of uh, ignoring of it and dreading of it. And rather than distract myself, I would really spend time paying attention to what, it, what is it like? What's, it lo- what's this mind state of aversion like? And investigating it. And I found um, there was some fear in it. Fear of making mistakes, you know, like would I put the wrong number down or would I misread some instruction or um, would I do something that would draw the attention of the IRS and I'd get audited. So I, I could really see 
um, some of the origins of that mind state, you know, of, of the fear, uh, confusion, uncertainty, um, And it also, and by really paying attention to it, rather than just trying to kind of like push through it, say, okay, I'm going to just sit down and I'm going to ignore all of these feelings and I'm just going to, you know, go through the tax form. By really uh, respecting the mind state that I was experiencing, um, I found compassion for myself arising. There was really um, I realized there had I had a lot of self-judgment about um, agonizing about taxes, like I'm a smart person, I'm an adult. I should be able to do this. Why am I having the you know why am I having these feelings? And so a lot of those thoughts and a lot of those self-judgments um, were just replaced with a compassion for, um, well, this is what it's like to be a human being living in the United States in the 21st century. You know, life is complicated, you know. Um, can, I, can I work with the complication of the IRS code with some compassion for myself. And that was real helpful. So on the morning of the 16th, when I got out the forms and decided to start on my taxes, um, (laughs) I felt a lot more tranquil than I have in years past. And... I wasn't even aware of the compassion part. I mean, until that morning when I turned on the television and I heard the news about the shootings at um, Virginia Tech. And one of my best friends, uh, his son is a senior at Virginia Tech. And my first thought was about uh, Mark and whether he was okay and uh, whether his parents were okay, whether his, how his family was reacting. And I really, I started to tear up. Um, Which kind of surprised me because every single day on the news, there's stories about people being killed, 150 in one day in Iraq. And I can hear those stories and read about them and um, kind of matter-of-factly. It's not something that I... Well, I have judgments about that as well, but this... I think the compassion that I had been had been developing for myself through this uh, looking at the at the, the mind state about taxes um, had really opened me up to compassion for um, 
a much broader group of people. Um, you know, Mark and Glenn and his wife Frances, who I had just had dinner with about two months before. And for the whole day, I didn't know uh, if Mark was okay or not. Um, I finally got a hold of a um, mutual friend of ours, a, a co-worker, um, who called me about 2.30 in the afternoon to say that he had talked to Glenn on the phone. And Glenn and his wife had actually been having breakfast with their son at the Virginia Tech campus that morning. And um, and so they were able to, to tell me through our mutual friend that, that they were all okay. And so the and so, so I still feel it. I mean, I talked with Glenn today about what it was like and his standing there on the road and seeing just ambulance after ambulance after ambulance drive by. Um, um, he started, his, his voice started to crack on the phone as we talked in a way that I had never heard before. Um, and in some ways, as, as, as painful as it's, this has been, um, it also feels like a, um, a gift of the practice to me. You know, a, a, an opening up. Um, so, um, so those are some of the examples of, of paying attention to or uh, bringing awareness to mind states that that I've experienced in the last few months from doing this practice and. And I find them uh, both helpful and enlivening. You know, the opening up of the heart in particular um, is, is something that I don't think I could have planned in any logical way. So... So now I'd like to open it up to questions or um, comments or uh, anything you'd like to share about experiences you may have had with um, uh, paying attention to mind states or um, you know whatever you'd like to share. Hi, I'm Joel. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jim. Um, in paying attention to the mind state, when I meditate, my mind goes off. And you said you're paying attention to your mind state. Is that a mind state? <laughs> when your mind goes off into uh, this story and then you pull it back ardently or 
I think that was the word you used. Mm-hmm. And then it goes off into another story, mm-hmm. and you pull it back. But isn't those mind states as well? I mean, it isn't the skipping uh, into story after story okay. like a mind state? Well, I think a, a useful label for that might be this is, an, this is what an unconcentrated mind is like. You know, so, oh, yeah, unconcentrated mind is like this. Starts here, goes there, goes there. Um, and then you may find either in meditation or, or perhaps in day-to-day life, you might, there might be some ex- um, activity you do where you might just find, wow, my mind's really staying on one thing. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I would guess you probably haven't some, somewhere in life of, oh, this is what a concentrated mind is like. So it's, yeah, does, does that, is that helpful? I think, I think mind state is, is, tends to be a little bit more uh, long-lived than the mind object. You know, so the story, you know, like if your mind's going from uh, paying attention to thoughts to paying attention to feeling to paying attention to smells, then it's going from object, mind object to mind object. But the, the mind state is, would probably be something like um, unconcentrated. Is that... There seems to be a um, value put on to the concentrated mind that see when the talks that I've heard that indicate that that is more happy, that is more um, to be concentrated in thought is a way of being um, more relaxed in life. And yet, in my stories that come through, I say, wow, you're a busy man. (laughs) You have a lot of people you're engaged with or things that you're engaged with. What a full life you have. Mm -hmm. And that is is happiness to me. Mm -hmm. So, um, I just enjoy them. And do try to come back to the concentrated mind when I can, but I don't put a value on the stories as being unhappy. Um, I really enjoy participating. A lot of times I like to just listen. But um, when I'm at work, I'm real happy. And I'm usually concentrated on what I'm doing, the task at hand. And I find that to be a very fulfilling thing. Although I work by myself most of the time throughout the day, um, I may have the radio on and something will come on back, you know, this or, or that. And then the radio fades out and I'm just very concentrated on what I'm doing from one stage to the next stage to the next stage to the next stage. And the, 
and uh, and then breathing in between and relaxing. And um, I like that concentration type of where you know pretty much my own space, but I still have other things going on. Um, either a phone call, you know, on my cell phone, or the radio and listening to something. And I like the music and stuff, but uh, when I was meditating, and um, there were those things going through my mind, there were several different stories going through my mind, this, that, whatnot. And um, I think they all said something about mindfulness. This is like listening to the people walk across the room, the cars driving by. Oh, the cars driving by, you know, mindfulness is that. You know, not shutting it out, but um, absorbing it and getting it and taking it in and then coming back. So that's mindfulness of states as well, I guess. Yeah. um, Yeah, I think the, the first the first part of this is just just being aware of of what the mind state is and, and noticing it changing um, can uh, can be just another form of mindfulness. Um, well, I'm really glad you were talking about this because I've been having um, an issue myself. And um, sort of came to a head this week because I was having a group of ten over to lunch, and I really wasn't ready for them when they got to the door. And that's because I had been procrastinating somewhat. And the reason I was procrastinating, I was thinking about later, was because I wanted things to be so perfect, too perfect. And so I wasn't able to achieve the level of perfection that I wanted, and so I wasn't ready. And I started thinking about this um, tendency to procrastinate and perfect and realized how much it gets in my own way. And so when you discover something about yourself, as you were talking about, um, you know, with, say, procrastination about taxes or whatever it may be, um, and you begin to feel compassion for yourself, how do you then deal with the underlying issue? Well, I can I can speak about the particular thing that I was working with. Um, um, part of it is is realizing, well, this is the way life is. You know, I don't always get things to be the way I want them to be. You know. Um, so there's sometimes there's some feeling of grief about that, you know, some feeling of loss, like letting go of the, mm, the fantasies that I have of what my life would be like if I ever finally got it together, you know, that that kind of thing, and and just you know just seeing. Well, that might have come from a place, um, you know, of, of really wanting 
um, you know, of, of, of caring for myself, but it's kind of gone wrong. You know, it's those ideas, you know, that idea that I was going to get through my list of, you know, 10 items that afternoon plus make a salad that would be just the rave of the whole evening and have it all done 15 minutes before the first guest showed up. Um, wasn't really caring for myself in the sense that um, I was suffering because of it, you know, that, um, you know, so kind of recognizing those times when, is this something I could just let go of? And, um, you know, really, I think the idea of concentration that we were talking about earlier is with a mind that's a little bit more concentrated, it might be easier to see the things that we're holding on to that are causing us to suffer. You know, the ideas of the perfect salad or the perfect dinner party. Um, With a mind that isn't so caught up in, in that whole list of things that we want done, but is more around what what is the best thing to do right now that will lead to the least stress? Um, with a mind like that, you're, it's a little easier, I think, to let go. Does that? Well, I, I think it was almost like a panic that seized me mm-hmm. when I realized, oh, they're going to be here and I'm not going to be ready. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of nothing to do about it because it's too late yeah. to fix it. And, um, you know, so it was too late to be compassionate for myself then. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm just thinking of the future. You know, mm-hmm. if, I mean, I knew these people were coming a month ahead of time. So there's mm-hmm. really no reason why this had to happen <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was just a matter of getting everything so perfect. Like I discover my kid's bathtub is dirty and I'm just scrubbing my kid's bathtub. It's like, who cares if my kid's bathtub is dirty? What does that have to do with serving lunch? Well, you know, in some ways, it's never too late. When that panic is there, then you can say, this is what it's like to be panicked. You know, this is what this is what this is what a contracted mind state is like. You know, and and it's not pleasant. You know, I mean, it's it's not like wow, this is great. I mean, it's like wow, contract contracted mind state. This is really pretty painful. But I think by paying attention to it when it arises you may be able to deal with it more skillfully than coming up with, so what am I going to do next time? I mean, you know, kind of like, you know, it's kind of like right now is the moment to, to wake up to it. You know, rather than saying, I missed it and I'm going to try to do better next time is, is really being with, with, with it at the moment. So... But thank you very much.
This is a great topic of, for a talk. Uh, coming in today, I was, uh, I was wondering, today was one of those days where I had the reverse Midas touch. Everything I touched turned to crap. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering, well, why can't I accept that this is perfect? Supposedly, one, one might be able to. And uh, if I can step back on those occasions and um, sort of realize that uh, we're all basically delusional to a certain extent. Um, you know, why do we have to have a bathtub clean when people are coming over? Why do I wake up the day before tax time and feel anxious? I mean, we, we set ourselves up for whatever reasons that we set ourselves up for. And um, I just try to um, come back to that, okay, well, there's more skillful ways of doing it, and basically the joke's on me. Mm. If I can't get it, then you'll be suffering. But it's still the way it is. And um, um, some days are better than others, mm. and some days you get the joke, and some days you just feel like screaming or do whatever unskillful things that one does. Um, anyway, hope you got your taxes on time. Yeah. You know, I actually felt a little bit cheated because I didn't realize they weren't due till the 17th. So I, I finished in the afternoon of the 16th. And then I, I drove to the Mountain View post office, which normally is open till midnight, you know, and there's all, they have coffee and donuts. And it's kind of it's a little bit of a, you know, cathartic experience. And I got to the post office and there were like half a dozen people just sort of milling about. And there was a sign saying taxes are due tomorrow. And so I just took the envelopes and I put them in the slot. And it was like, that's it. You know, it was like, wow, that was I mean, it was very anticlimactic. So um, you never know. (laughs) Anyway, so thank you for your attention.